Hey everyone, welcome to the Significant Strike Podcast. It seems like it's been forever since we did one of these shows, which isn't exactly true because we did one last week, but it was a little bit different. We had a great guest, Brent Primus, but there were no fights, so we're back to doing our regular thing with me as always is the man with the plan, Val Dwyer. How's it going tonight, buddy? It's going good. I mean, actually, we did two last week, technically, because we did the one just on one fight. And that's um, for next week's event for people who haven't listened yeah, yet, right? next week's main event. So we did our recap and everything of UFC 265 last week. I'll just say it again. We went two and three for minus three quarters of a unit, 0.75 units, however you want to say it. Um, but yeah, so last week we did a, a, a whole show on Edson Barbosa versus Giga Chikadze because, uh, the line is just too good to pass up. Had to get that out early before it starts moving. So that's out there if you want to look at that for next week. Um, this week we're going over a pretty deep card actually. It is a deep and card. I was looking at it and there's lots of fights I'm interested in here. Yeah. Yeah, there's only like two that I'm that are like a really high level, but there's a bunch that are interesting or have value or both. And then um, we should talk about, or I'll just say that we're doing a new thing instead of sometimes at least instead of doing a whole episode on an early line because it can't, we can't always do that because lines shift and move throughout you know any given day, any given hour. So. Uh, sometimes, like this week, I'm gonna, we're gonna be putting out lines that we like on the Twitter early. Like on Tuesday, I tweeted one out. I think that was Tuesday. I tweeted one out. So that's the official play. Um, but then we'll still explain it on the podcast as usual. Just, we'll have given out the line already. So just keep a lookout on the Twitter, um, for, for plays. And that's just a, uh, that's just um, much easier for our listeners and our, our fans or whatever we'd like to call them, and for us as well because there <laughs> there's certain times that you know you want to get an early play out and it's not necessarily easy with all my kids and stuff to uh, schedule in uh, laying down a podcast, so it'll be easier for us and uh, easier for the fans to get to if they follow the Twitter. I hope they all are. And then we'll still discuss the fight and uh, why you wanted to get that line out there quickly when we do the regular show. Yes, sir. Exactly. Okay, we got a uh, a lot of fights I know you want to talk about. Like I said, I'm pretty interested in this car, not because uh, there there's a lot of names I'm interested in here. Like you said, only a couple of them are really like high-level type stuff right now, but there are some guys I'm watching mm. here. Um, where do you want to start? Uh, we'll start with Ignacio Bahamundes versus Roosevelt Roberts. So this one's interesting. Well, first of all, we have a number of fighters on this card who the last time they fought was our very first card that we did an episode for. Ignacio Bahamundes is one of them. Yes. Um, another is Luis Saldana. Another is William Knight. Uh, I think there's one more that I'm missing. It's funny because uh, Saldana was on my radar for this fight for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'll t- we'll, we'll talk about him for sure. But yeah, Ignacio Bahamundes, he fought John McDessey in his debut, which is a tough debut. We faded him because McDessey was an underdog. Um, McDessey won a split decision. But 
it didn't really drop Ignacio's uh, standing in my eyes. It was, it was it was a really good fight against the one of the most accurate strikers in UFC history in John McDessie. And John McDessie fought maybe better than he ever has. Uh, that was a fight of the night. And Ignacio showed a lot of good skills. He just got out volumes and, and lost the decision. It's that simple. But he, we've talked about him before, but he's a kickboxer that, you know, does the whole switching stances, picking his shots, uh, switch kicks, movement that makes him hard to hit when he's moving around at range. Um, he's really skinny and lanky and tall, uh, six foot three with a 75 inch reach and he fights at lightweight though he has fought at welterweight in the past, which is kind of insane. Um, and, and yeah, he's just one of these young dynamic strikers. Like the, the best example is Sean O'Malley because uh, although maybe they don't have the exact styles, the same kicks, the same techniques specifically used. You see a lot of young dynamic strikers that are like that. Yeah, and in, 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 in the grand scheme of things, and it's, it's a multiplier when you talk about somebody being six three in that division. You know what I mean? That's it. Exactly. That's a huge multiplier. Yeah, exactly. It's the same with Saldana. He's six foot at featherweight, and then Sean O'Malley. What is he? Five eleven or six foot at bantamweight? <clears throat> so you see this throughout the divisions, and it's the same with Israel Adesanya. He's he's. Uh, like and John Jones, they were both so tall and so long for their divisions. Although John Jones wasn't the same as a striker, he's just an all-arounder. Um, but yeah, Bahamandez, really good kicks, and like I said, he's moves around, head movement, switching stances, all that at range. But he's hittable at times when he's in the pocket and he's being pressured or he's doing the pressuring. Um. Important is that he uses calf kicks like so many fighters do now. I think he... And so I think both of these fighters are being undervalued on the line, kind of, if that sounds possible. Which it doesn't sound possible, but it kind of is. These guys are both underrated. Because Roberts is uh, on a two-fight losing streak. Bahamundes, obviously, on a one-fight losing streak. Um... And I, I think they're pretty even here because Roberts, he's a Muay Thai and BJJ guy. He's also pretty tall or quite tall, a six to two. So they match up really well in that in that aspect. They match up really well in, as far as having a dynamic kicking game. Um, but Roberts is on is on a two fight submission losing streak, uh, and and that's his issue. But it's, so it's interesting to see, although he got. Finished by lesser standard of competition, Kevin Kroom, who uh, burst onto the scene in that uh, UFC debut fight, he he clubbed Roosevelt Roberts bad and then got him with a standing guillotine in the fir- in thirty seconds, and then sh- later on showed that he's just not at that level that he showed himself to be. I mean, he gassed pretty badly in his next fight, just desperately trying to get takedown after takedown. But that's a story for next time we see him fight. Um, but And then before that, he got onbarred by Jim Miller, which, you know, he's old, uh, but still still great, great jiu-jitsu, great submissions. Yeah, so, and so just... Re- uh, it happens. Yeah, and just, he's just a... He's a very experienced fighter. Sometimes, uh, 
experience will will beat out you know youth and skill you know jim miller isn't anybody to play around with so that's a i mean that's a respectable loss yeah um so these these guys are so low on the card probably because of their uh recent losses but i think this is a great matchup as far as just exciting i think this could be end up being a fight of the night um But I feel like if there is value, it's on Baja Mendez, but I don't yet really feel like it's enough for me to bat. The line has been moving a bit towards Baja Mendez. It's at plus 130 right now, coming back minus 145-ish for Roberts. Um, I'm going to keep monitoring this line. If it gets a little wider, maybe I'll go on Baja Mendez. Uh, but mainly it's just an exciting fight I wanted to briefly talk about. Um, I'm kind of... Um Strong on Baja Mondes here as well. When the line opened up, I'll just pick one. It was at, uh, we'll go with five dimes. But uh, when the line opened up, Baja Mondes was minus 105 and Roberts was minus 125. And so that that's a, uh, the opening lines are where you get, get a good idea of what the odd makers thought. And then the lines move according to where the money goes. But now... He opened at minus 105, and you can get him at plus 125 on five dimes. If it goes much higher than that, I, I'm going to put something on it. Yeah, I <clears throat> I really did. Like This is one I went back and forth on a lot if I was going to bet it, but I decided I'd just wait and see so I could kind of defer my decision till later and see where the line settles. And just as Val said that um, we'll be putting out early picks on the Twitter beforehand, if there's a fight like this that we talked about but didn't necessarily lay a bet and then the odds move in our favor, that will also be on the Twitter. So please always yeah. keep checking the Twitter to see where we're going. Yeah, we do that. I mean, you can turn notifications on. I don't tweet that much except for recaps and stuff. Um, so I won't blow up your notifications. But, yeah, that's uh, uh, at SigStrikePod on Twitter just in case you aren't already following it. Anyways... Um, up next is a, a light heavyweight fight between William Knight and Fabio Charant. So William Knight has, has been in the division for a, not really a long time now, but it, it feels like it because of the way he's beaten, um, he, he took the zero from Alexa Kimura, who's, who's a, a hot prospect he beat Jamel Jones before the UFC, who is fighting in the PFL playoffs uh, against the number one seed, Capaloza, uh, this week, or actually tomorrow on Thursday. Um, he lost to Tafan Chukwi before the UFC, who's uh, a really hot prospect in the UFC that's just so built, just like him. Um I don't know. I felt like he, he had more UFC-level fights than... His time in the UFC would suggest, which it's only been two fights. He's fought Alexa Kimura and Dao Jung, gone one and one, plus his contender series fight. And overall, he he's nine and two. It just feels like he's been around longer. I don't know. Anyway, the, his opponent though has not been around. His opponent lost to the aforementioned Alexa Kimura on the contender series in 2019 by knockout. Then. um Went on to become the LFA uh, light heavyweight champion. Um, 
though not against great competition, came back to the UFC as a short notice replacement actually for William Knight uh, because Knight was due to fight Menefield, I believe was how it was. And Knight uh, pulled out or got injured or something. And so then Charant became the replacement. Charant fought Menefield. Um, and yeah, Menefield took him down, choked him out inside of a minute. I'll get into that more later. Um, but I, I'll say right from the jump, I don't think Charant is UFC level necessarily. I think he just, he's one of the guys that, I mean, you lose on the contender series, not a good look. Though, though Kamor is a good fighter, but then you lose your debut inside of a minute. I mean, anything can happen, but I think he only got the call because they needed a short notice replacement. And now he's still here, but we'll see how it goes from here on out. Yeah. I just like to say, um, before you get into whatever breakdown you have. It's very interesting, too, because the money is moving in Sharon's favor, which I don't yes. understand at all. Yes, that's why I prob- I'm, I'm going to have a bet on this. I probably wasn't before, but Sharon was my or Knight was minus two thirty. Now he's as low as minus one seventy five. I think is well, one seventy six. He opened at minus two seventy five on five dimes, and now he's down to minus one seventy. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah, Bet Online, I think, was, uh, which is where I base it off. Usually it was 230 and now 176. It's, yeah, it, it's insane. And I, I mean, I get people betting an underdog, but I don't. We'll get into it. Um, William Knight was a high school state champion wrestler, so he has that good base, but he mainly loves to just brawl, and he's good at it. Um, because he, in his record, he only has the one decision win. Every other uh, win he has, it, uh, knockout, 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 knockout. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then knockout. So seven straight wins by knockout, uh, interrupted by the loss to Tafan and Chugui by knockout. But his last two fights have been decisions. Alexa Kamur, he decisioned Kamur, which was a really important fight to, to show his development and show that he can go three full rounds. Because all these other fights... Only one of them hit the third round. Um, and that was actually his first contender series fight. He's had he's had two contender series fights. Won both of them, but the second only the second one got him the contract. And then yeah, this last fight he just met a far superior wrestler, a guy much bigger than him who could take him down and hold him down in Dao Unjung. Um, he actually also uh, he beat. Jorgen DeCastro, a heavyweight in his am- amateur MMA career. Um, and, I mean, William Wright's 5'10", like I said. It's crazy that he's beating a, he beat a heavyweight in MMA and, and a UFC-level heavyweight at that when they were both amateurs. Um, but then he did lose to Jorgen DeCastro in a Muay Thai rules bout. Uh, so that was that's just weird. Um, and he beat Matthew Semmelsberger in, in his amateur career, who Semmelsberger is a welterweight now. Uh, so that just shows you all kinds of crazy things happen on the uh, amateur circuit. But, yeah, so he likes low calf kicks and front kicks up the middle. He lands powerful combinations. He's great overhand right, as you'd expect from a brawler built like that, but he does set it up well with his jab. Um, simple but effective is really how I describe him in, as far as striking. He lives his chin up in the air a bit too much sometimes, but he has a strong chin 
And Sharant isn't a great striker or a knockout artist or anything. I mean, I don't think, I'm pretty sure Sharant, all of Sharant's finishes are by submission. Uh, yeah, and then two decisions. Two decisions and five submissions. He, he has a, Sharant has a decent left hand, but it's not like a one punch knockout left hand. So I, I think the advantage there is definitely for William Knight. The grappling could be important because that's where Sharant will try to go. He has, William Knight has decent takedown defense, um, especially if he doesn't go to the guillotine immediately, which is a problem of his sometimes, but it's only decent, like, against the, depends on the level of the wrestler. Against Dao Jung, he was dominated, but against Alexa Kamur, who's more his level, he, he stuffed every takedown, um, or reversed them, or got back up. And that's the type of level that this fight's on, maybe lower. Um, but it still showed a potential weakness in his game against uh, Daun Jung, as no one had controlled him like that before now. But, I mean, Daun Jung is a six foot four monster. I don't know how he, he actually is making light heavyweight. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, <laughs> William Knight has two amateur wins by key lock, which is a rare shoulder crank submission also known as an Americana, um, that in his amateur career, that suggests a more deeper jujitsu game than we've seen in the UFC. Although he is good at exploding up off his back to get up, and he has a decent top game just because of how thick he is and strong upper body. But yeah, his explosions to get up I, remind me of Derek Lewis's just getting up because he just waits for the right time and explodes and gets up. Um, he also almost got a key lock against Alexa Kimura, but he, I mean, he had it fully locked in, but the horn saved him. Uh, it was about a second away from snapping Kamura's arm. Um, one problem is he gives his back too much in scrambles, but thus far has been able to use that explosiveness to spin back into opponents and end up on top. He's able to throw large opponents around with unexpected ease. I mean, he has great judo throws and powerful double legs due to that. Um, really powerful ground and pound, as you'd expect. On Dana White's Contender Series, he stuffed the takedown, then the opponent tried, decided to rest there in on the double leg, and he punished him with the downward elbows to the side of the head and knocked him out that way really quickly. He, he's just dangerous with uh, any part of his body, especially his upper body from any position. <clears throat> One problem is he has issues with fight IQ. Sometimes instead of focusing on position, he hunts for submissions that end up with his opponent getting up or, you know, reversing Knight in the clinch. Uh, and and he initiated clinches with Daun Jung, despite Jung continually taking him down through the clinch and couldn't adjust to defend the one simple outside trip from Daun Jung, um, ending up being taken down eight times in that fight by Jung, though, again... He did just get up. He exploded upwards a, a few times against a man much bigger than him. But uh, it would have been better to see him, you know, actually defend those takedowns, the, the outside trips. Right. And I think that might be why people are betting so much on Sharant, though that's not really how Sharant gets his takedowns. Actually, Sharant doesn't get takedowns that much at all. He usually lets his opponents initiate the grappling and then submits them. Um. So yeah, I, I think I think that last fight against that Jung, complete domination against the guy who uh, a wrestler, or in a wrestling manner, is making people uh, and the bookies even. I mean, 
I thought night would have been minus 300. Some books opened to plus 220, 230, like we said, and now down to minus 170, 180. I think that could be why that Dong Jung fight. As for Fabio Charant, he's a grappling specialist. He's a southpaw, so it'll be interesting to see how Knight adjusts to that as far as landing his low, low kicks. Will he go, you know, will he go for the lead leg outside or the rear leg inside low kick? Um, but his finishes, Charant's finishes are against opponents who are combined 8 and 17 at the time they fought. His first four opponents were 0 and 3, 1 and 1, 1 and 5, and 0 and 0. Uh, and then he lost to Alexa Kamara on the contender series. Then after that, two decision wins against the, uh, a two and two and zero opponent. And then an 18 and seven opponent for the vacant LFA light heavyweight title. Those are the two best opponents that he beat. He also has a history of missing weight, missing three of his last four fights, weighing in at 213, 209 and 206.5. Yeah, that's bad. The 209 one was against a middleweight, which was the 2-0 opponent that he faced and decisioned, um, which uh, you already have that much of a size advantage. You miss weight by three pounds, but even worse, of course, is missing by nine pounds, um, and that was against a 5-3 and three opponent that he choked out in round one. Uh, the other one... The two, 206.5 weigh-in was on his short-notice UFC debut against Alonzo Menafield. So it's forgivable. For yeah, sure. you can forgive that one. 206.5 on a short-notice fight. You can kind of forgive that. But the other two are just so egregious, and they might they potentially show a lack of discipline. I don't know him, but uh, that could be what it shows. Um, what first stands out, especially in against UFC-level opponents which he hasn't had many of, is his low volume and hittableness. His left hand is powerful when it lands. It just doesn't land often unless he's very confident in his stand-up, which he only has been against guys like the middleweight I mentioned before, uh, Yuji, a 2-0 fighter who is much smaller than Charant. Um, and the only strikes that he really uses are his left hand straight and left high kick, like without any variation. He'll just go back to them and them alone as solo shots without combos. I mean, and I'm only exaggerating a little bit there. Sure, he'll use his lead hand some, but it's mainly uh, rear straight left and left high kick over and over. Um, And they're powerful strikes, but there's no nuance there. Any half-decent striker should be able to see them coming and defend them because that's all he does. His guard defensively isn't good, doesn't do much to deflect punches coming at him. His southpaw stance opens him up to brutal high kicks and body kicks, um, which we could see from William Knight with his Muay Thai background. His footwork is questionable. I've seen, the, I mean, the biggest mistake, the biggest no-no in terms of footwork that you learn on day one of any striking class is to not let your feet cross over. I've seen his feet cross over when he's moving laterally in the cage. Um, you can never let that happen. Your 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 balance is instantly off. Yeah, that's not just striking; that's wrestling as well. If you cross your feet, then I can push you in the chest and knock you over. I don't even have to use a lot of force. Yeah, um, I'm going to talk about his in his Dana White contender series fight against Alexa Kamura. It was just a game of him circling the cage, retreating. And not throwing anything. Alexa Kamura was just slowly pressuring him, but not really cutting the cage. So Charant wasn't getting cornered. He just kept retreating to his left and around and around and around they went. Kamura landing punches and kicks here and there. 
I mean, the first round was like 33 to uh, 5, I think, in terms of significant strikes landed. 30-something to 5. I know he landed 5 strikes in the first round and 2 strikes in the second round. Charant did. Um, and, and so in 6 minutes, he threw 22 strikes and landed 7 of them. Uh, and then, yeah, but after landing two strikes in the second round, he got knocked out by a perfect flying knee that he r- rushed into. I mean, he, it, the flying knee knockout wasn't his fault, but the just doing horribly before that, not throwing anything was, um, you can't, you can't predict those kind of flying knees when you enter the pocket, that you can't enter the pocket more carefully. No, but like you said, he rushed into it and, uh. I think that's that's a product of him realizing like his strikes aren't landing, so the frustration set, sets in. You know what I mean? And then you, yeah, then you start doing some stuff that uh, in the gym you would know don't do that. But when you're out there in the shit, things get a little different sometimes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, um, I, I, he didn't get off a single strike in his UC debut, but that's because. Right away, he got taken down and subbed. Menafield just rushed forward with no respect for his striking or anything, picked him up and slammed him um, to the up dog against the side of the cage. Uh, Charant, his natural instinct was to go to the guillotine, which is, I, I said that as a problem for Knight. It's even more of a problem for Charant. That's really all he does to defend takedowns is, is go for the guillotine. Um, and Menafield was inside control with his shoulder over Charant's neck, setting up what? The Von Flu choke. And Charant did nothing about it. He he just held on to the guillotine. Which we've, it, it was, which we've railed against a million times. Yeah. I, I can't think of how many times we've been watching fights and we're screaming at each other, just let go of it. Let go of it. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is even worse because he was on the ground holding on to the guillotine in the perfect position. And I... I don't know how he didn't know or his coaches didn't tell him that, hey, you you got to let go of that because you're on the ground. His shoulders are at your neck. He can just posture up, you know, get his hips up in the air and Vaughn flew you. And that's what Menafield did. And by the time Charant realized, which he had about 15, 20 seconds to let go of the guillotine, by the time he realized, though, he, he was being choked out. And Alonzo Menafield, who's a striker by trade, got... Uh, I think only the fourth or fifth Von Fluchoke in UFC history. Um, but yeah, uh, Charant loves rear naked chokes and guillotines and has a bunch of finishes with both. But again, we just talked about it. Selling out on a guillotine is not smart at this level, especially against unless you have a dangerous, dangerous guillotine, which we've talked about this time and time again. Most people don't. They just, especially coming off the regional level, there are guys like Gerald Mearshart, Charles Oliveira, Brian Ortega, and one guy I'm going to talk about further up the card who have dangerous guillotines that, that I mean, I don't mind them going for, but they're also great off their back. Um, but yeah, selling out on it is not going to be smart against an accomplished wrestler and grappler like William Knight. And it seems like his first instinct in defending takedowns is just to go there. Um... In the clinch, I've seen him controlled by a smaller, inexperienced opponent more than he should, which uh, William Knight has said that the clinch is his least favorite part of fighting, but he was able to... He did have a clinch war with uh, Alexa Kimura for about half of their fight, so it could happen again, and I think uh, I, I think William Knight would control him there well. 
Um, and yeah, despite being a grappler by trade, he doesn't have good takedowns and rarely, rarely even attempts them. He only tries to use his ground games when other people take him down. It's like the Brian Ortega problem of, I mean, Brian Ortega does shoot takedowns, but for, he's known for having shit takedowns, but amazing jujitsu and submissions. Um, and having to finish every fight by submission, having to get in the clinch and get a standing guillotine and things like that. And that's kind of the issue here, except for he's way worse than Ortega as far as submissions. Although he, he it is still his best skill. Um, but I just think Knight is a better striker than Charant. They're both relatively simple, but Knight it has more volume, power, and diversity. Charant hasn't shown an ability to exploit Knight's main t- weakness, which is takedowns that Daun Jung showed. I think Knight should even be the one to shoot for a takedown, and he wouldn't be able to do what Alonzo did in Charant's last fight as far as just picking him up and get slamming him down pretty quickly with the double leg. Um, obviously not not replicate that as far as the Von choke though, but yeah, I think if Sharon is on top, Knight is good enough to fight the submissions and explode to his feet, because uh, he did so against someone much better than Sharon in Da Eun Jung, and like I said, I don't think Sharon is UFC level, even in a division with very poor depth, like light heavyweight, like this light heavyweight division. <clears throat> so uh, I'm just going to make sure the line hasn't changed. Since my last looked. But, yeah. So I have here... Oh, we have the best we... Yeah, well, minus 170 on five dimes. Yeah, that's what so, I'm looking at. Yeah, so I'm going with this for um, one and a half units. I, I mean, I've been, started with one unit when it was like minus 200. And I've been increasing the units as it's gone, as the odds have gotten better. Um well, because it, it it's climbing more in our favor as well. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. So, like, the, it, there's more value on it the more it climbs. So I've had to increase the units. Um, I would have uh, – I was thinking about taking the minus 3.5 uh, point spread, you know, as we do. But if you look on Bet Online, the minus 3.5 point spread is the same – the exact same, minus 175, as what the line is there now. So there's no value in taking the minus 3.5 when it's the same as the money line. Because, I guess because they, the, the money line moved down so quickly, they didn't, and they didn't adjust the uh, minus 3.5 point spread accordingly. But, yeah, that's our bet. William Knight, minus 170 on five dimes for one and a half units. You can get him on similar places. Bet online, minus 175. Pinnacle, minus uh, 175. DraftKings, 180. Yeah, DraftKings, 180. William Hill, 180. Uh, those are the best. Uh, yeah, those are the best. Um, we yeah, we look at two different boards so we can cover all the all the betting options for people. But I do like that bet, and I especially like that you went one point five because uh minus one seventy one eighty. Unless it's a uh, this is the kind of fight where I just feel very confident that um, they're mismatched fighters. You know what I mean? I think William Knight is better. I think Sherratt isn't UFC level, really. Yeah. yeah and stylistically, I, I think it's good for Knight, too. I think he holds all the cards, really. <clears throat> so, uh, on to the next. Alright, here's the one we've, we've already kind of oh. teased it a little, right? I know what you're going to next. Well, I just wanted to actually say real quick about this women's MMA fight. We got 
one massive bantamweight in BM Malecki, who's only two and zero against Josian Nunez, who's seven and one. Right. And I, um, I, I don't. I'm not like going to go deeper, even go say anything more than just I've seen Josian Nunez punch, and she has insane power. But she's she's way outsized here by BM Alecki, so that's pretty much the matchup you're looking at. A, a big, strong woman who can't hit that well, but against uh, a, a medium-sized woman who can hit, you know, like 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 the Nunez last name uh, suggests. <laughs> yeah, and and I noticed that too. But um, at at what the plus money is. I don't know if there's worth throwing, you know, throwing a piece at yeah. Nunez, but um, she she de- doesn't much tape on her. Yeah, but she either for me to see. She definitely has like a knockout power for that division. You know, what I mean, she can yeah. she can put a good, well knockout power for that division is a little weak. They don't get slapped like they do in the bigger men's divisions. But I mean, she can ring some bells. But um, if oh, yeah. the money was a little bit better, I would say to bet her. Yeah. All right, but yeah, so on to the next one, which, yeah, I teased because Brian Kelleher is one of those rare guys who does have a really good guillotine. Um, but And he's a vet. He's been around the block a time or two. He has a lot of wins and losses in regional promotions and Cage Fury and Ring of Combat and even a loss against Jimmy Rivera and Bellator before he made it to the UFC. And ever since coming to the UFC, he's done really well considering the incredibly tough competition he's faced. I don't know any other unranked bantamweight who has fought this insane level of competition. He has wins over Yuri Alcantara, Henan Barrow, although the old, the the, the modern day Henan Barrow, but still, uh, 2018 Henan Barrow, uh, Hunter Azure, and then Ray Rodriguez and Odie Osborne, as well as two wins over UFC fighter Julio Arce outside the UFC. But it's his losses that really stand out. And you can't really blame him for him. Um, his second fight in the UFC was Cheeto Vera, Mar- Marlon Cheeto Vera, who's, you know, one of the most exciting ranked fighters at Bantamweight right now. And we think number 14 in the world. Uh, then John Lineker, a few fights later. Then Montel Jackson, which is the weakest loss on his resume, but still a good fighter. And then Cody Stamen, a dominant wrestler who's way bigger than him. And in his last fight, Ricky Simone, another dominant wrestler who's bigger than him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he fought Cody and Ricky at featherweight, even though he's already a small bantamweight. I mean, he barely cuts to make bantamweight. Right. And the Montel Jackson loss was by Bravo Choke, which is, you know what I mean, not not a common submission we'll see a lot of. Yeah. Um, and... He he also had that, that Hunter Azure is a legitimate featherweight. I mean Kelleher will fight up at featherweight despite already being a small bantamweight. He he's just he's he's one of those guys who's down for any fight. Um, I mean having a six and five UFC record with those opponents is really good. As is the fact that he finished all of his UFC wins except Barrow. I mean he's great submissions, great uh, with the guillotine as I mentioned. And in the UFC he has one two. Three finishes by Guillotine against Alcantara, Osborne, and Ray Rodriguez. Um, all those in round one. Um, and then, and then he also he knocked out Hunter Azure, uh, Damien Stasiak, and yeah. He he's the thing is he, he'll be six inches shorter than Pilarte in this fight. Um, 
and I think 10 inches less in reach. He has nasty chokes, like I said, uh, and he's an underrated striker with good power. But it's going to be hard for him to overcome that reach advantage, even though he's done it before. I think this might be the biggest reach advantage he's faced. I mean, and it's Pilarty is six feet tall, uh, like we discussed before about guys who are tall at their division. Although Pilarty isn't a dynamic, super dynamic striker like those other guys, um, he's long and, and he uses his length decently. I'll say he could use it a lot better, but he's more of a jujitsu guy. Um. Uh, like, I wanted to go bet Kelleher because I think Kelleher is the far better fighter, but the line and the size threw me off. Uh, I think the odds are just are close to appropriate for this fight because, I mean, we've seen uh, Pilarte slept badly against Journey Newsom, who I don't think is UFC level. Uh, yeah. It, that was in his last fight. It was overturned because of weed, so we still count it as a win. Um, and then he, in his two fights before that, he was controlled a good amount despite his jiu-jitsu credentials and he lost the split decision to Felipe Kolarish. And on the Contender Series, he got a win over Vince Morales by a rear naked choke after losing most of the whole fight before that. And before the fight before that, he beat Adrian Yanez in LFA, our boy Adrian Yanez. So he's a tough one to kind of get a read on, I think. And then that, that Yanez tape, I couldn't find it anywhere. So did he get, um, um, did Morales get slap in that, that win on the contender series? Because that's listed as a technical submission. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know why it's listed. I, I don't know. I, 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 no, I don't think so. I, it was just, uh, maybe he went out, but he, it was, it was just yeah. a normal submission. Yeah, well, I'm not taken away from it, but uh, I always notice when they list it as technical, that means that, uh, to me, that means he didn't tap. He probably just went out. Yeah, that, that, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I watched this fight like two days ago. I, I don't, I don't know. It, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Um, I, I think there, there's a bit of an edge in Kelleher just because he's the better striker and. He, I don't think um, that Pilarte is going to be able to grapple him well. Um, and I think if Pilarte could get guillotined by shooting in, but the, the line just there's not enough edge here. I think it could be maybe minus two hundred, but it, it doesn't. It, Kelleher's minus one seventy ish, one seventy five. I think really is where you can get him most places, and that that's just not enough of an edge for me here. Yeah, I I do look for uh, Kelleher to uh, just uh, um, close the distance and go for the grappling, you know, because obviously he's he's facing a huge reach advantage and height advantage, but um, a grappler with his skill level, once you get inside your lower center of gravity, can really do some shit in there. So I look for it. I, I think he could. Sorry. Oh, I just look for it to be kind of a. A dirty fight like that, and a lot of times this may be one of the fights where uh, fans aren't necessarily too impressed because I think this is going to take a lot of place on the ground. It definitely could, but I think he could also just step into the pocket. And, and I mean, he has, Kelleher has a lot of power for his size. I think he could step into the pocket and just knock him out cold like Journey Newsom did to him. I mean, Pilarte's chin is not the best at all, so if... if yeah. 
it's all about Kelleher getting into the pocket, though, to, yeah, either to grapple or to just land that big Yeah, and to uh, just go along with your point, hit, Kelleher's nickname is Boom. So he does have some yeah. He does have some power in those hands. For sure. Uh, I mean, five of his uh, six wins are, the like I said, the only one that he didn't finish was Henan Barrow. Um, you can, Kelleher is plus 125 um, to win inside the distance. But um, it's just not, again, not enough edge for me. No. A little outside the All range. Right. So on to the next. We have Austin Lingo versus Luis Saldana. Yeah. I'm I'm excited to see Saldana fight. This this could be a really great fight. Um, all right. Lingo. Austin Lingo here has a Muay Thai background, but uh, he doesn't really use kicks that much in MMA. He comes forward trying to box almost exclusively. Uh, but he comes out firing hard from the get-go. In his own words, he's most dangerous in the first three punches, which is only a slight exaggeration, as his cardio will be fine for a round or so, but past that, he slows down noticeably and starts breathing very heavy. His resume includes five first-round finishes, four of them inside 40 seconds, but if it gets past that early stage thus far, he hasn't found a finish. He utilizes constant but simplistic forward pressure, um, and has good power, especially early on again. Notably, has a good overhand right and a lead left hook. Uh, he has a solid chin, but he uses it too much, not getting his head on the center line when he moves forward and, and, and throws his strikes. In his UFC debut, he fought Yusuf Zalal, a similar fighter to Luis Saldana, in that they're both lanky, dynamic strikers. Um, though Zalal probably has better footwork, and the footwork of Zalal gave him a lot of trouble moving laterally constantly. Lingo just kept coming forward, but just missing constantly as Zalal would get off the fence, circle out, dart in, attack, uh, get back out again, and just tuned him up over the course of 15 minutes. At times, Lingo did have him corralled near the cage, but he he was chasing. He wasn't cutting the cage um, and didn't close off the exit for Zalal with hooks or round kicks. He would just throw big punches overhand that missed every time. Or he tried to clinch, which he did a few times. But Yusuf has good jujitsu, and he was able to get out of that. Or he was able to turn the clinch into a tie clinch and, and just knee Lingo in the face because he was much taller, as Saldana will be in this fight. Um, but yeah, jabs, knees, calf kicks, and high kicks were all really effective for Yusuf, and, and that they're all things that Luis Saldana loves to use. Uh, he was also good with his takedowns. They were effective to smother that pressure of Lingo and wear out his gas tank, which was, like I said, uh, weakened at the end of the first and pretty much depleted by mid-second. Um, Saldana doesn't really have a takedown game like Zalal, but he could potentially implement that too as is just how poor Lingo looked as, as far as uh, all he could do really on the ground was survive. Um, in his last fight, Lingo met a fighter in Kilburn that would engage him on his terms, meet him head, not, head on and not try to escape with his footwork and, and uh, work from the outside like Zalal. Uh, Kilburn got, A, Kilburn's not UFC level, he got, but and B, he got knocked down inside 20 seconds. Lingo was great at leading with the jab and timing the right hand over the top of his opponent's jab to repeatedly land his best power shot, either an overhand or a straight right. And that was really the story of the fight. Kilburn tried to wrestle and got in deep often, but just couldn't finish his takedowns. Although Lingo's takedown defense uh, 
was better though it's like you look at it as oh it's better because it was the worst fighter or he actually got better uh though in re- the reality is probably it's a bit of both I-, I do still think it's a weak point in his game though um i think he lacks the def- re- uh defensive wrestling fundamentals to a certain extent single legs are easy to finish on him as he doesn't have the muscle memory instilled in him to get the wizard and and shove the head uh, he grabs guillotines too much, like Charant we mentioned before, instead of defending. He's better at defending double legs, but not much. His forward pressure also makes him an easy target to change levels on as he's coming forward. Just reactively plant your feet and take him down, using his momentum entirely against him. And he's basically a non-threat off his back. He doesn't have the flexibility for a dangerous guard and struggles to get back to his feet. He's not good in scrambles. He has two subs in his career. One was uh, with that guillotine that I mentioned against the low-level guy, and another was a club and sub rear naked choke on a uh, you know club and sub means you hurt the opponent and then you right. choke him out. Yeah, so both low-level opponents. I mean, especially the guillotine, it was against the guy who was just one and two, so he's not really a submission threat. Uh, Luis Saldana, he's been doing boxing and kickboxing since he was literally a child. His first boxing match, not like started training, but his first official match, uh, exhibition anyway, was at the age of eight years old. He's really dynamic, switch stance kickboxer, tall and long. He'll have a three inch reach advantage here. Great footwork, great distance management, fast handed kick speed, has a very sharp jab that helps with maintaining that distance and, uh, I, I look for him to, you know, pop that jab into uh, Lingo's face repeatedly as Lingo tries to close the distance. He utilizes cap kicks um, from closed stance and front kicks to the belly from open stance. Digs to the body with hooks and blasts it with powerful round kicks from open stance. Um, he's good at creating openings for uh, his high kicks with his punches, like uh, like one-two high kick, the Rob Whitaker special. Um, he uses his lead hook to hit advancing opponents, but he needs to shorten it. It's too wide and sloppy right now. It needs to be sharper and shorter to be more effective. But he just has a very diverse set of striking weapons in his toolbox, unlike Lingo. One weakness is his propensity, which you see a lot with these dynamic, uh, long strikers, young strikers especially, for leaving his hand low around his stomach, uh, at any range, uh, being overconfident in his speed advantage. But his head movement and ability to glide out of the way is good. And when he does get hit, he rolls with the punch as well. So even when they're landing, it's not with maximum, you know, devastating knockout power. He does need to stop doing spinning shit. Uh, he didn't do it on the Contender Series, but he did do it in his UFC debut versus Griffin. And it got him caught uh, repeatedly. Even though he landed one spinning back fist, it got him taken down a bunch of times. And that's why the fight was so sloppy and he barely snuck out with a decision because Griffin made it a sloppy fight. I mean, he, and he needs to be careful against a powerful hitter like Lingo if he spins and could get caught coming around. Um, but he likes knees in the clinch. And while his opponent comes forward, intercepting knees would be a great tool to use here um, to, to counter Austin Lingo's pressure. Uh, on the Contender Series, he tuned up a bantamweight who was on the current uh, Ultimate Fighter season, actually, for two rounds until he dropped him with two front kicks to the face back-to-back and then finished him off with ground and pound. But what impressed me the most was in that third round, he was fighting to an easy win. He was tuning the guy up. Um, 
but he came out in that third round with a lot of intensity and determination to get that finish, knowing that he had to do so to get that uh, contract from Dana. Um, and he did it in spectacular fashion. And it, and it was, showed good cardio, too, to after two high-volume rounds to turn up his pace and, and really go hard. So he definitely has a cardio advantage here over Lingo. His last fight, he won a unanimous decision, but very close decision, against a fighter more similar to Lingo in that he comes forward more. But Jordan Griffin is a, more of a grappler instead of a, a, a forward-pressure striker. And that gave Saldana some issues. He somewhat solved those issues to get the win. After, you know, he would get taken down too easily, but he was able to outgrapple Griffin at times in the first and third, mainly in the third, uh, to earn the win by by you know just reversing reversing uh, Griffin when Griffin had top position. It was still a disappointing performance, and it showed that Saldana likes a cleaner fight where he can just evade and keep striking rather than have to deal with messy grappling, messy clinch work. Um, but Lingo isn't like that. He does sometimes clinch up against the fence, but he's not really a wrestling threat, and he doesn't make the fight super messy like Griffin. And he's always hunting for that knockout shot and often missing when a smaller, more measured shot would serve better to close off the escape route against the fence and make Saldana uncomfortable. Uh, I think Saldana will be able to escape the fence and be comfortable, but that right there against the fence is where this fight will be won or lost for Luis Saldana. I think um, oh, shoot. when I look over Saldana's record, like, um, you know, because this will only be his uh, third UFC fight if you count his contender series fight. He had one in LFA before he got called up to contender series, which is uh, LFA is a decent promotion. I, I won't I won't slack them. But if you go back over his record, he was in AFC and MCC and RFA. You know, he was... RFA is good, but the rest, not so right, much. Right, he, he was jumping around, and I think he's a... I think he, um, early on, uh, he was in smaller promotions and just took them as, like, uh, prize fights. You know what I mean? Now I yeah. think he's... Uh, He's at a good gym, and he he's more committed to the MMA game. I think he's thirty years old, and he's got what? Uh, he's got twenty one fights. Yeah, he's got, he's got, got twenty one fights. fights. But I think he's a young thirty, and I think yeah, like. I think he's taking it seriously. I'm kind of high on this guy. I, I want to see what he does. Yeah, I mean, we bet on him last time, and although he didn't perform to my expectations last time he still came out with the win and cashed the ticket for us on the first significant strike podcast week ufc on abc too um but yeah i mean he's been doing this since 2011 but he took he slowed down for a while it seemed and then like he, he skipped he only had one fight in 2015 and then 2016 he came in with a vengeance and then 2018 is when it all came together he got four knockouts in a row got his ufc contract and then uh, won his first UFC fight, so he's on a five-fight winning streak right now, and I don't think this is the spot uh, <clears throat> where he's going to lose. lose uh, where, yeah, where he's going to lose. Um, also, his last fight was his first decision win. All his other 14 wins were by submission or knockout. Um, so, like, although he doesn't have a good uh, offensive takedown game that he's shown, or even good takedown defense, he does have good jujitsu. 
uh, able to get submissions off of his back and the like. Yeah, I mean, he has inverted triangle choke. He has a couple triangle chokes. Um, one inverted, one not inverted. Um, overall, I just think Saldana has a huge advantage, especially if it goes the distance. Lingo's best chance of winning is to knock him out. I think the chances that Saldana can avoid that with his head movement and get the decision, or maybe even a finish to gas out Austin Lingo, are worth placing this bet. So, yeah, I'm on. I'm on Luis Saldana here. Um, let's double check the lines to make sure they're where they were earlier. <clears throat> see what I got him at right now. So yeah, the best uh, earlier there was minus one fifteen. I maybe I thought it would stay that way, um, but right now the best is minus one twenty on five. Yeah, dimes. I got him uh, minus one twenty on five dimes and on another one. But yeah, that's about the best. Which uh, um, yeah, minus one twenty five. Yeah, places. William, William Hart has him at uh, one twenty as well, but. That that's a pretty good number because as I'm looking at other places, you can find them up at 139 and shit. So 120 is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it is. So yeah, we're going Saldana one unit. Um, yeah, five diamonds minus 120 one unit. All right. Simple as that. Yeah, we both agree on that one. <laughs> our, yeah. our don't be a pussy parlay might be pretty close tonight. <laughs> Well, yeah, we'll have to figure out a way to to mix it up. So we're skipping over one fight to do for one of our segments uh, at the top of the card. Um, the next fight, I'm gonna real quick go over the Vince Pichel versus Austin Hubbard fight. I I didn't do as much on this fight as I wanted to, so I might do more research and get back to it later. But I I, I thought it was a pretty even fight at first glance. But listening to um, someone who is a great capper and does great work with stats, Uncle Wheezy. You can find him on Twitter and YouTube. He was talking about how Austin Hubbard has been historically weak to wrestlers, and Vince Michelle is a, is a good, quite a good wrestler. Austin um, Hubbard is one Austin, of the guys I had on my uh, my screen to just pay attention to this fight. Yeah, he's this This could be a good fight. I mean, if it's standing, I think Hubbard has the advantage on the ground. Pichel has the advantage, and I thought it was that simple, but Hubbard has been weak to wrestlers in the past, though he is a cardio machine, um, and he, he mostly just outlasts guys to get wins. I mean, if you, do you have anything you wanted to say because you had him on yours? Just that, um, yeah, I think he's a cardio machine, and he's um, he's only lost twice by submission. And uh, that was uh, Selecki two fights ago in the UFC. Who's great. Right. Love Joe Selecki. Right. And uh, the other one was uh, way back in his career in 2016. So I think if he keeps it on the feet, he, he's really someone to watch. And the, his other two UFC losses were against really accomplished wrestlers slash grapplers. Davi Ramos, uh, ADCC world champion, um, was his debut fight, and he lost, but he, he managed to avoid getting submitted, which against an ADCC champ. And Mark Madsen, I mean, who is also da- on this card. Yes, who, who I tweeted a play out earlier, and Mark Madsen's an Olympic silver medalist in Greco-Roman wrestling. Right, so those guys um, those guys uh, wrestle-fucked him. <laughs> you know what I mean? For sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were hard. His other, and... and um, his other three wins are nothing to write home about, although he beat up Max Ropskoff so bad that he, Ropskoff, 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 
whatever. He I'm retired just, um, at the end of round two. Not retired. Re- he quit at the end of round two. He said he couldn't keep going. And that was a bit of a controversy last year because his coach was trying to convince him to keep going. He said, no, I, I can't. I can't. Um, and I, Max is back um, on, on the regional scene doing well uh, in Cage Warriors. He just uh, won his first fight since that happened and uh, getting cut from the UFC after that. Uh, just, just happy to see a guy who didn't. It, it's a tough situation. I'm not going to talk about it more here. Well, because I, I got off track there. Yeah, but, but glad to see Rockscoff doing well. Yeah, uh, and I'll just say, um, <coughs> some people may not like it or whatever. You can say whatever, but if you go two full rounds and you're like, uh, I got nothing left in the tank, and you're just honest. I mean. That takes some uh, humility and some honesty and just some integrity, too. You know what I mean? So I'm glad Roscroft is yeah. uh, doing well and working his way back up, too. You know what I mean? If Yeah. Shit, dude, if a guy's whooping your ass and you're sitting there going, I got nothing left in the tank, there's no sense in me going out there again. Maybe the people in the stands don't like it, but I'm not mad at him for it. Yeah, I mean... We see it in boxing more where coaches throw in the towel, but in the UFC you, you will almost never see a coach uh, like throw in the towel on his fighter. You see it a couple times, you know, if the coach is really worried about some specific thing like a, a broken bone or something that right, that's the fighter's thing, trying yeah. to hide. But if they're just getting the shit beat out of them, they still won't throw in the towel. They'll be like, come on, you can do this, even though the fighter – Deep down knows he couldn't, can't do it, and that's what happened there with Rockscoff. All right, so next up we have Parker Porter versus Chase Sherman. Um, Parker Porter is a funny name, like Porky Parker, Porker, Parker Porker, like he's a pig because he's a fat heavyweight. Get it? Anyway, <laughs> Parker Porter, 36 years old. He's been fighting pro since 07. He actually... This is crazy. He actually fought John Jones in his, that like that John Jones in his third career fight, uh, John's fifth career fight, um, and then Gabriel Gonzaga six fights later, uh, of course losing to both. Um, his only UFC win, which he's had two UFC fights, was against the absolutely awful Josh Parisian, who we recently saw barely scrape a split decision over the worst heavyweight in the UFC, in my opinion, Roque Martinez. That was just you and me watched that yeah. fight. Yeah. <laughs> a month ago, that was a yeah, horrible it was. fight. Uh, uh, he lost in his debut to rank currently ranked prospect Chris Dalkas by round one knockout. Which no shame there, really, because Dalkas has power, legitimate power in his hands and is on rising through the rankings. Um, but Parker Porter is so big, let's say <laughs> he has to cut to make two hundred and sixty five pounds um, for his short notice debut against Dalkas. He had to cut from 295, he said, even though he's a short heavyweight at only six feet tall. So he, on fight night, he's probably weighing in 270, 280. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. While only being six feet tall. Uh, full camp for his next fight, and he weighed in at 263, so that's better. Um, should be around there this fight for the weigh-ins, probably. Um, but he gives up four inches of height and three inches of reach to, to Chase Sherman here in this fight but probably has 20 pounds on Sherman because Sherman's much, much leaner. Um, Porker likes to lunge forward with punches, and when I say lunge, I mean it literally. Like, he pushes off into lunging into the air, pushing off his feet, 
with a straight punch, usually with a chin up in the air. In any other division, it would be terrible, and he would always get caught. But at the level of light heavy at of blah, 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 at the level of heavyweight he's at, he can maybe get away with it. Um, and sometimes he lunges forward. If he misses, he'll just clinch, uh, which not great idea for him necessarily because he can be, you know, he's so short at, at such a big division that a lot of guys can just frame off him and get him into a collar tie and bring knees up to his face, which definitely has happened to him in his two UFC fights. Um, one thing he does well is sticking his jab out there to blind opponents to pave the way for his overhand right to come over the top. Throws the occasional naked leg kick, but it's not a massive part of his game. And at other times, or most of the time really, he just ducks his head and walks forward throwing hooks. Hooks and overhands. His hand speed isn't horrible. I mean, it's average for an unranked heavyweight, meaning it'll be much slower than Sherman's though. He had a bunch of big sh- shots against Dalkas before being knockouts and ate a lot of big ones versus Parisian. So he has like a solid chin, but he puts himself in such bad situations defensively that he has to rely on it. Like he shouldn't be having to rely on his chin this much and eat so many big shots. Even though he uses a high elbow guard, he just, it's simply ineffective. He doesn't, he only brings it up when he's thinking defense, which we, I talk about this a lot, though I haven't gone in depth with it, but a lot of guys, they only actually defend themselves when they're cognitively thinking about defense. Most guy or a lot of inexperienced guys will just, or, I mean, this guy has a lot of experience, just a, a lot of fighters will only defend when they're thinking defense and when they're on the offensive or even in a neutral, like they're thinking about attacking but they haven't yet, they'll just kind of stand there with their hands at their chest instead of using their typical defense, which in this case is a high elbow guard. Um, in that most recent fight versus Parisian, who, like I said, I'm low in Parisian, he got beat badly in the first round but came back to win the rest simply by having better cardio than Parisian who went for it all and gassed after round one. So, I mean, despite his size, 295 outside of camp, he does have solid three-round Right, cardio. which... Uh, his clinch game... I was going to say... Well, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, that's the amazing thing. Uh, and I picked up on uh, the joke you put down in uh, uh, Porky Parker. Yeah, you would not expect him to have the cardio he does. He can last. For sure. Um... His clinch game is weak, despite the fact that he likes to clinch up with guys, like I said. And it's because of his shorter stature, but also because he doesn't get proper head position. And so, yeah, a lot of guys turn that into a collar tie, control him, and knee him in the head. He will shoot the occasional takedown, but his top control is just not good. It's more of a way to mix it up for him than anything. He was able to trip and control an entirely gassed Josh Parisian for a bit. But when Parisian wasn't gassed, he was unable to establish top control and Parisian kept standing right back up though it did it did serve tactically to to gas out Parisian quicker on to Chase Sherman he's 31 years old five years younger he was in the UFC actually from 2016 to 2018 fighting seven times in that period and losing to now ranked fighters like Shamil Abdurakimov Walt Harris and Augusto Sakai going two and five in that stint and getting cut he went away won three MMA fights fought for bare knuckle FC uh, fought for the fought for the heavyweight championship in BKFC actually, and lost the title to the current champ Joey Beltron, a former UFC who fighter. hits like a Mack and truck. Got, <laughs> yeah, and then he got signed back to the UFC. So a wild ride for him since 2018, but he's back. 
He's in good shape for heavyweight with a thinner frame than a lot of heavyweights, but quite tall, 6'4", like I said. He had, he had a great performance in his return to the UFC last May, um, but his performance was marred by PEDs, though not overturned to a no contest. He was suspended for nine months, but the performance wasn't overturned because he showed that he did not, quote, fully cooperated in the investigation and showed that he did not intend to enhance his performance. Um, but you have to wonder how much that affected him. His next fight was against the pit bull, Andre Arlovsky, who outpointed him like he kind of does to all these younger guys, except the ones good enough to break into the top 15. Although Sherman did come very, very close, like inches away from finishing the legend yeah, Andre that in was round a good one. fight. Yeah. Um, Sherman also says, I found this out recently, He to- I didn't know this at the time when we watched that fight, but Sherman says he tore his meniscus and partially tore his ACL in the warm-ups for that fight. I mean, that has to be taken with a grain of salt because fighters make all kinds of excuses, but it could be true for sure, and it could have been a huge factor in that fight, especially considering the way he won the first round and then kind of declined as the fight went on, um, when usually he does have good cardio. Uh he has really good low, low kicks, you know, calf kicks, and occasionally switches it up with inside low kicks. And what I especially like is him using constant hip feints to make sure his kicks can land unchecked and with his opponent's weight forward or at least evenly distributed so it does the most possible damage to that calf. His fast hands for a heavyweight, though not perhaps as much knockout power as your average heavyweight, but he's, he's still powerful. I mean, he is a heavyweight. And he, and he has a bunch of knockouts on his record, of course. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, 14 of his 15 wins are by knockout. Yeah. Uh, like, the the Ike Villanueva win a- after he came back to the UFC, his first fight back, That was, it was more of an accumulation of punches than a straight-up knockout, is what I'm trying to say. But, hey, whichever works, works, you know? Um... But more importantly for him, he throws a lot of volume. He lands six significant strikes per minute, which is the second most ever by a UFC heavyweight with more than five fights, or five or more fights. Per numbers MMA, he's only after the legend, one of the GOATs, Cain Velasquez, who has like 6.5 per minute. Um, the top 10 list is rounded out at like 4.7. Most heavyweights are averaging like three to four uh, significant strikes per minute, so he's doubling up on a lot of heavyweights here. He has a good jab using his 78-inch reach well. He's good with combos. Um, he likes to tease his jab non-committally a bunch and then throw the 1-2 or 2-3 combos to start. And then, over time, extends his combos You know, as the fight progresses. He also works his leg kicks in at the end of combinations frequently, which I love. His check lead hook is sharp on the counter, which could be important to catch uh, Parker Porter. Or Porter Parker. Port- Parker Porker rushing forward because, like I said, he lunges forward. He works the body with his boxing from time to time very well. And uh, he is good in the collar tie with knees and elbows when the opponent steps into the pocket. Again, a stylistic advantage he has over the shorter Parker Porter. And he doesn't typically wrestle offensively, but he has solid takedown defense. I think he has like a 77% UFC takedown defense. Although it hasn't been tested in his current run, in his older run, though, it was. Um, overall, I think Porter is near the bottom end of this heavyweight division. And this is the weakest men's division. I mean, obviously. Chase Sherman is the opposite. He's nearer the top 15 than he is the bottom. And he has the, an athleticism advantage. 
a massive one, a reach advantage, a slight cardio advantage, a massive speed advantage, and just an overall striking and clinch advantage. I think there is an edge here, and I like Sherman to win at minus 190, but after much deliberation, I decided to go with our favorite bet, the minus 3.5 point spread for minus 125. I think it's worth it to get that better price of minus 125 instead of minus 190. I mean, a finish is likely in this one, but if there isn't finish, I see Sherman having too much speed and volume and cardio for Porter to really win rounds off of him. Uh, Yeah, I just think Sherman's better by that much that it's justified to take the point spread here. So, yeah, that's the bet. Bet online, minus 3.5 point spread for minus 125. What do you Um, think? Well, I was going to say interesting things. Uh, He's had four fights go to decision. Sherman has. And he's lost. He's lost three of the ones that go to decision. Um, he's been KO'd four times, but uh, the caveat to that is eleven of his fights have all ended in the first round. You know, um, so the action's going to be quick. I think he's much faster. Um, he comes in at about two fifty. So he doesn't really have to cut weight. You know, he comes in basically as walking around weight. He doesn't have to cut weight. Porky Parker is going to have to cut weight. But as we said, he's shown some cardio to go three rounds. But I I really look for this to be, um, it's going to be a war. This could be fight of the night, even if it ends in the first round. You know, I mean, these guys are going to come out swinging is how I see it. All right. Do they do that? I won't try to change your mind. I just see it the opposite way. Do they do, they do that? Can they? Uh, do, do we ever get fight of the night from a first round finish? Oh yeah, Vincente yeah. Luque versus Tyron Woodley was was fight of the night. Um, yeah, it, well, it definitely happens if it's a crazy as hell. First I think round. I think if it goes out of the first round, then your bet's right on. You know what I mean? I think the first round of this fight is going to be fucking crazy. Yeah, I mean, we shall see. All right. There's um, there's our but, one but disagreement that's, that's, for the night. We never plan them, but they always yeah. come up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's that. So on to the next. We're This is the, the bet I tweeted out beforehand. Um, it's on Clay Guida versus Marco Madsen. Um, and Soft is going to uh, talk a bit about Clay Guida for us. Well... I just want to say, um, I've been watching this sport since the first UFC. You know, when it when it was pay per view, it was nine dollars ninety nine cents. It was a pay per view event, and they filmed it. You know, it was like a tournament fight happening right now or whatever. But uh, that's just speaking about my history. Um, Clay Guida is one of these guys that's been around forever. I like these old fighters. He's he's definitely past his prime. He's 39 years old now. Um but he he's still um he's still relevant enough in the division that he keeps his contract. Um one of the things that uh I think is unique about him and Val and I have discussed this before is he has he has a crazy style of movement like uh, the only other two people that are close, and they're all a little bit different, but Frankie Edgar, Dominic Cruz, and Clay Guida. 
and those guys, Dillashaw, Dillashaw a bit, a bit too. Yeah, he has he has some uh, cruise type moves to him. But the funny thing is, is all those guys are really wrestlers first, and they have this really unique striking style. The way they move in and out, and the way they circle. You know, a lot of times they don't necessarily back in and out. They just, um, like they're standing on a 360-degree circle, and they just twist on that circle and make you miss that way. He's a hell of a guy. Um, what's his nickname? The Carpenter. Yeah, the Carpenter. But uh, I think he's past his prime, but... I don't think you can ever count him out because fighting a guy like him or Cruz or Edgar, you don't even know till you get in there because you can't really, there's not people that you can spar and train with that move that way and react the way they do, you know. So I'm just a big fan of Clay Guida. Also, another reason I'm a huge fan is because he's a powerhouse. He's got 56 pro fights, you know what I mean? Not too many people get to that. 56 pro fights. You know, he's he's a man's man. I love Clay, Clay Guida, and I'm very excited for this fight. Yeah. So, yeah, and the and the main thing about Clay is footwork and his cardio. His, he's the, the, you know, the pace king of the UFC or one of the Yeah, them, at, at 39 years old, he still does it. Yeah, he still does. I mean, he's lost a step or two, but he he still has the that the the cardio. To, to set a high pace for three rounds. The only guy to outpace him anytime recently was Bobby Green. And Bobby Green, I mean, we discussed that two weeks ago. He, um, but, I mean, he, he has had a, like, he's had such an up and down run of late. His, le- his only four wins lately, I mean, lately being since 2017, are Eric Koch, jo- Joe Lozon, BJ Penn, and Michael Johnson, all far past their prime. Yeah, all guys from uh, from and his era his, when they were all... lost to uh, Charles Oliveira, Jim Miller, another old guy, and Bobby Green. Yeah, all those guys he beat, like uh, Lothan uh, and I mean, BJ and then, Penn. Going back further, I mean, it's loss, loss, win, loss. Yeah, but um, what if you look back at his uh, his career, though, and... Uh, it's it's like a who's who in the division of who this guy's fought, you know, win or lose, you know, uh, Gilbert Melendez, Chad Mendez, Tyson Griffin. Uh, he has wins over RDA and Anthony Pettis and Nate yeah. Diaz. I, I'm pretty high on Madsen. I think he I think he's a great fighter, but I just I just love Clay Guida. I love the old school guys in uh Jesus Christ, um, if I was that active and that much of a badass at 39, I would certainly be proud of myself. You know, I hope he does well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, him beating uh, Michael Johnson in his last fight out, I mean, it was, I was great. I was happy for Clay, but it was also such a sign of, like, Jesus, Michael Johnson, dude, like, what <laughs> yeah. are you doing? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Michael Johnson... He's thirty five. He he he's he's old, but he's not super super old, and he's just doing horrible. But that's, that's yeah. But you, know, you conversation. For we time. we watched that fight together, and I think we both felt the same way about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um. Anyway, Marco Madsen. 
the Olympian, they call him, because he's a three-time Olympian and an Olympic silver medalist in Greco-Roman wrestling uh, from Denmark. <coughs> Excuse me. He's been in MMA for a while, though. I mean, he started his pro career in 2012, took a few years off for the, the 2016 games, and came back to MMA full-time in 2018. He's undefeated in MMA at 10-0, including 2-0 in the UFC, against the lower-level Danilo Bellardo, who he finished in a minute and 12 seconds with uh, ground and pound. I mean, he just took him down and bam, bam, bam. Dominant wrestling, dominant ground and pound won. And then uh, uh, won a unanimous decision against uh, Austin Hubbard, who we talked about a minute ago, who's a decent level fighter and is somewhat similar to Clay Guida in his current level and style. Being Honestly, he might be a little bit above Clay Guida in level, but a little dip below him in style matchup for this as he's not as good of a wrestler. But he does have really great cardio. Um, but he, uh, like, Hubbard's not amazing anywhere. He's just a cardio machine. But Madsen, he lands 8.33 takedowns per 15 minutes, though that's only over 16 minutes of fight time. Uh, but he lands at a 64% clip. Um, you know, 64% of his takedown attempts, they land. His striking resolves around a strong right hand, pretty much, which we, we've talked about. We know a lot of wrestlers have. That, that that strong right hand, yeah. just one strong punch because of their powerful core. Um, and it's especially useful for throwing down powerful ground and pound, though he's improving over time on the feet, for sure. He has some submission game. I mean, in, in his career, he has two rear naked chokes. and uh, uh, No, sorry, a rear naked choke and two standing guillotine subs in his career, plus three TKOs, and then obviously four decisions if you do the math. Um. Excuse me. He loves to charge forward with a jab and then a couple overhands to back the opponent up to the fence so he can clinch them. And from there, there are not many people at this level, at this weight class, who are going to be able to keep it standing once he has you. I mean, there's so many takedowns he can go to. Obviously, his best, his most comfortable is his traditional Greco-Roman takedowns. But he's also great at getting body locks and using outside trips as well. Um, I mentioned his ground and pound before and specifically his right hand. But even more important is his, his elbows because he can lay on you flat so not posture up not give you room to potentially escape and still just destroy you with those short elbows using his upper body to control you while destroying your face um and he's got what you'd expect from him in terms of top control and he's even better at regaining it when opponents struggle to their feet he can control fighters even after they create successful scrambles in a number of ways you know like spinning to the back or getting the front headlock and then consistently getting successful mat returns, which in MMA they're just scored as takedowns uh, or, or statisticized as takedowns. Um, on his feet, one problem is ducking his head too much to avoid strikes. He got hit with knees a few times in the Hubbard fight. One especially particularly rocked him, but he showed a great chin to survive that third round and get the unanimous decision, unanimous decision after dominating the first two rounds. Um, hopefully his camp, I mean, he hasn't fought in a year and a half because of, because of quarantine, pandemic, all that, but hopefully his camp will have gotten that tendency out of him and gotten him more comfortable in the last year and a half since we've seen him, as well as getting him more cardio because he wasn't able to keep taking Hubbard down into that third round because he, he started to get low on cardio. Uh, also Hubbard was effective with leg kicks, which is one problem. He needs to learn how to defend those for sure, but he's still new to the game. Yeah. 
I mean, he's 36 years of age, but he's a much younger 36 than Guida because oh, he's yeah, taken much less yeah, damage. Yeah, for sure. Like we said, he, uh, Madsen's fought 10 fights. Guida's fought 56. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and even when you factor in the Olympic wrestling experience, it's not the same. Um, all right, so now I'm just going to talk over some stats on Clay Guida and why I'm betting against him in this fight. When Clay Guida gets taken down in the UFC, he's 3-8. and eight. He's 13-6 and six when he doesn't get taken down. When he gets out-controlled, so control time by the opponent is more than his control time in the UFC, he's 0-6. He's been out-controlled by Oliveira, Bermudez, Mendez, Benson Henderson, Kenny Florian, and Gray Maynard. And whether or not he gets more takedowns or more control time, if the opponent takes him down two or more times, he's 0-6 as well, though it's a different... 0-6 again, but like a different 0-6, different six fighters. Um, take off Oliveira, Maynard, and Florian in that list and add in Tyson Griffin, Gilbert Melendez, and Bobby Green instead. So you look at those guys, Oliveira, Bermudez, Mendez, Benson, Florian, Maynard, Griffin, Melendez, and Bobby Green. Um, Which of those are better wrestlers than Marco Madsen? I mean, Chad Mendez... <laughs> That he is probably, probably the it, closest. Right? Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's yeah, better, I mean, but he's the closest for sure. I don't think. I don't think he's better in pure wrestling, but I think Chad Mendes is a better MMA wrestler. Yeah, you and, know? It, but I, I think Madsen it, is close, right? Sure. And that's one of the things I, I want to touch on after you give all the stats. Yeah, no, that, that's all the stats. It's just that Clay Guida. I mean, he's not easy to control. He's not easy to out control to take down two or more times. But I think Madsen definitely does that because that's what his entire game is about. And he's one of the best at it in the UFC because of his pedigree. Um, and just because of that fact that Clay doesn't win when he's out controlled. He doesn't win when he's getting taken down multiple times. I really like Madsen I, here. Um, and let me say, I like Madsen here as well. But I, I am a big fan of Clay Guida, so I'll just... Uh, talk about uh the positives or the ways he can win first of all his 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 foot movement that we've already talked about you know the way he moves around the cage uh making himself unavailable for takedowns and number two is madsen is still early in his career and uh olympic wrestling is is different than mma wrestling and uh clay guida Though not nearly as credentialed as Madsen, uh, he started wrestling when he was like five years old. You know what I mean? He's been wrestling 34 years of his life or whatever it is. You know, he He's a good wrestler. Uh, all that being said, uh, the, statue, the stats you gave uh, point themselves out. And uh, the Gilbert Melendez one is kind of bad because Melendez isn't that great of a wrestler at all. The... Chad yeah. Mendez is he's le, he's a legit I mean, wrestler, so you can see that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, Melendez, Bobby Green, Tyson Griffin, <clears throat> those aren't super great wrestlers. But it's I mean, it is still hard. It's not it's not been done a lot. Not many people have taken him down multiple times. It's six times, six people. Um, but he he's just not winning in those situations. And I think Madsen definitely takes him down. I mean, two times would be 
if I had to set an over-under for takedowns by Madsen in this fight, it would be like over-under six and a half, five and a half. Because I think Guido will be able to get up. Right. Uh, but I think Madsen will be able to put him right back that's, down. The only problem the... is the third round. The third round, the cardio, because Clay Guido will, will outlast him. I think Madsen wins the first two. And the question is, can Clay Guido, I mean, win that third round, maybe a 10-8 to make a draw? Or uh, finish him in that third round. So there could be a hedge opportunity live for 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 Marco Madsen if he's dominant in the first that's two rounds. That's the uh, yeah. That's kind of the rub. Is uh, you know Madsen's going to take him down, and I think Guido will be able to get out because uh, in the MMA world he's got way more experience learning how to do that. It's how many times Madsen takes him down, and uh, what happens in the in between moments. Clay's got to be towards the end of his contract. I can't believe the UFC will sign him for another one. I would like to see him go out on a win, but if if you're telling me I have uh, $50 to spend right now, I'm putting it on Madsen, really. That, uh, that's big coming from, from you, Soft. That's big coming from yeah, you. Yeah, I, sure. I, I love Clay. I do, but, I mean, i got to be honest and real with, our, with the people that listen. All right, so that was the the co-main event of the evening. So why do we still have two more fights to discuss? Because up next is the people's main event of the evening. Which is going to be a regular segment. We're going to figure out how to do it. But we've decided that a lot of times the best fight on the card is not the headliner. So we're going to... We're going to start doing this. But yeah, this is the people's main event. So yeah, I'm treating this as the co-main event right now, um, and then I'll discuss the regular main event afterwards, but it's Brandon Royval versus Alexandre Pantoja. I mean, anyone who knows me should have been able to know that this was going to be my pick for my favorite fight. I mean, it's two BJJ black belts who love to brawl. I mean, this is I think this is going to be fight of the night, really. I mean, there's a couple other uh, contestants, but these guys are going to go to war. And and it's going to be a blur because they're flyweights. Um, Brandon Royval, for a flyweight, he's a super prolific finisher. He's really tall in this division, too. I mean, he's 5'9". He has a 70-and-a-half-inch reach, which UFC lists him as 68-inch uh, reach, which is definitely not true because they list Brandon Moreno as 69-inch reach, and in the Moreno versus Royval fight, Royval clearly had a longer reach. I mean, the UFC's stats are all messed up. I mean, they had Jarzinho Rosenstrike the same height as Cyril gone. Anyway, I digress. He's four inches taller and has a two and a half inch reach advantage over Pantoja. He's a young up-and-comer with great jiu-jitsu, 28 years old, he's, and he's just an absolute madman on the feet. He only has one decision win in his career, the rest by finish, mostly by submission, and is burst into the title picture at flyweight by coming over... After being the LFA flyweight champ in submitting Tim Elliott in a short notice, one week short notice opportunity, and then submitting Kai Kara France right after that, both of those were earned each man fight of the night bonuses. Yeah, the the, was, the Kai Kara France fight was a big win, dude. That was good. Yeah, that was, and it, it was absolute insanity as long as it lasted. It's just like a round and a half. Um, and then in what turned out to be a title eliminator last November. He lost to the current champ, Brandon Moreno. It was a competitive fight, though, that was lost due to him dislocating his shoulder 
uh, badly at the end of round one, and Moreno ground and pounded him, and the ref stopped it, and then everyone noticed, oh, his shoulder's dislocated. That's because he was writhing in pain yeah, on the ground. Yeah, it was stopped at 4.59 of round one. <laughs> yeah. Um, he does so many crazy things in striking, though, that it, it's hard to explain. Uh, but here's one example. For his first LFA title defense, he came out with a flying knee a la Masvidal, and it definitely hurt his opponent, uh, Williams. But Williams grabbed the leg and was holding onto it, trying to take him down. So Brandon Horival, he did a jumping kick with, like, he he leapt into him with his body and the kick parallel to the floor, like like a bicycle kick in soccer almost, and uh, you know trying to kick his head off basically, and, and then went to the floor and into his guard, um, and submitted the guy in 23 seconds by armbar to defend his title. Uh, that That's just the type of insanity this man brings to the octagon, really. He's a good pressure fighter, though it's not like a conscious choice to be a pressure fighter or educated pressure. I really think it's just him wanting to force the action because he wants to always be fighting. Um, but in any case, it's a lot of volume. And he had uh, experienced kickboxer and uh, city kickboxing prospect Kai Kara France on his bicycle for most of the fight just backing up backing up backing up as long as it was on the feet anyways and he keeps that up almost constantly uh he has great cardio and sets a very high pace throwing a lot of volume he uses his reach well pumping out the jab non-committally to manage range or to close distance whichever one he wants and kicking a lot from that range or forcing his way in uh to pressure with the double jab, I mean, whichever thing he wants to do, he can accomplish by using that jab. Low kicks are a tool of his, but his favorite kick is open stance body kicks as he's a southpaw. Um, he sets up his body kicks with punches very well. When he enters the pocket with punches, he often improvises a knee to the head. Um, his height makes it much easier to get any uh, of his knees to the opponent's head as all of his opponents are three or four inches shorter than him. Um, this weapon worked really well on Kaikara France repeatedly, knocking him down uh, on one of the times it landed. He also uses them as intercepting knees, which he uh, uh, shit. He also uses them as intercepting knees when his opponent enters the pocket, and that is something that needs to be used much more often in MMA. I, I love it. Well, and, um, um, it could well, be particularly effective on Pantoja in this. Yeah, fight. old yeah? Cer- old Cerrone. Um used to use that a lot. I always called it a check knee. He doesn't, he quit, he moved away from it. But yeah, that knee catching guys walking in. You know what I mean? Really where you take a half step and throw the knee up and they walk into it. Yeah, it's... Aldo Aldo did it too a lot. Right, and guys aren't using that anymore and I don't understand why because I think it's underutilized totally. Yeah, exactly. Um... Yeah, so he, he can use it offensively or on the counter. Um, when I get to Pintoja, I'll, I'll show why it could be effective against him particularly. Uh, Raval needs to get his hands up more. He's one of these guys who fights with his hands down, which makes him a bit hittable, though his movement is awkward and, and his head movement is good. So it, it can be hard to hit him, but if his hands were up, it'd be even harder. Grappling, I mean, he's a black belt, like I said. His long limbs help him a lot with his already prodigious talent. Off his back, he's just so dangerous at throwing up triangles and arm bars. 
he has five of those combined. I have three triangles and two arm bars, I think. And, I mean, we've talked before about other ways long limbs help you in grappling, like being able to sink hooks in when you take yeah. someone's back. A uh, bunch of other examples for wrist control, like Dagestani handcuff type stuff. Uh, isolating the legs when you're on top. bunch of things. He's great with sweeps um, and, and scrambles off of his back. Roarval's take down defense is questionable. I mean, but there's also an argument for him not not trying to defend them really at all or that hard because he doesn't mind being off of his back like a lot of jujitsu guys. This is apparent versus Tim Elliott, who's a who's a prolific wrestler, who controlled him at times and got him down with ease. But Oroval kept getting back up, kept throwing up subs, um, and when he would get back up, he showed his explosiveness. And he he really explodes up when he gets up. Um, though he can also you know set up sweeps, like I said. Um, and then in, in round two, Warval outlasted Elliot and submitted him as Elliot just kept trying to take him down. He's good at rolling from position to position ahead of or with opponents, like a lot of jujitsu guys. I mean, all of them should be if you're a black belt. One problem, main problem of his in the ground game is he thinks submission over position sometimes. Uh, and he's really got to improve that mental aspect of his game. Uh, I think that's, you know, and he also has a good rubber guard. He was really close to getting a go-go plata. I mean, he had the the foot under the chin. And then right afterwards, he was almost, he was close to getting an omoplata versus Kaikara France. Uh, just something to note. As for Pantoja, he's been an important part of this division for a long time. He's 31 years and, old, either close to the end of his prime or just and past we, it. And we like Pantoja. Yeah. That's why this is the people's yeah, main oh, event. Yeah, I love both of these. Love both of these guys. Um, I think Pantoja is the more technical fighter in this fight, but he's not as physically skilled or necessarily as violent, you know, not as explosive uh, as Brandon Royval. His main accolade is breeding Brandon, Roy, Brandon Moreno twice, actually, if you include the time he choked out the champ on the Ultimate Fighter, which is the ulti- only time Moreno has ever been stopped pr- uh, exhibition or official match. Um, Pantoja himself has never been stopped, and although, but we have to say that was back in the old days when before Moreno got cut, came back new and improved and right. won the title. Um, but Pantoja is on a two and two run at the moment, though he's only lost to the current number one and number two contenders, Davison Figueredo and Askar Askarov, both by decision. Um, but he, while beating Matt Schnell and Menel Cape, two underachieving flyweights. Uh, Pantoja's all around good technically, but he just, like I said, doesn't have the same physical skills and athleticism as his opponent in this fight. And he's orthodox, so this will be an open stance fight. Uh, Pantoja moves forward a lot, almost all the time, in fact, and sometimes he just lunges forward. In those moments, his footwork is bad, his feet can cross over each other, which is such a big problem, potentially, which we talked about earlier with Charant. He's counterable in those moments, especially as he leaves his head out there, but not many have been able to punish him for it thus far. Only really strikers of a certain level, like Figgy and Askarov, have done so. Um, and Figgy is the only man to ever knock Pantoja down, but when he lunges forward, he's really wide open to get knocked down. And his defense isn't the best. He relies on his chin too much. I mean, this is backed up by stats, as he has only a 53% striking defense, which Roryval has a similar striking defense, but the... uh the sample size is is only like 16 minutes, um, whereas for Pantoja, it's like two hours. 
He's a guy who'll stay in the bra- pocket and brawl at times, which is great for the fans, and it's great for Roy Val. It's what Roy Val often wants to do. I mean, it could be great for both of them if it earns them 50 Gs. Uh, he uses leg kicks inside and outside. He likes the right high kick a lot. He's a good counter puncher. Um, not quite as good as he is on the lead, but he's especially good firing back power right hands over the tops of jabs, lead hooks, lead uppercuts, you know, really any lead punch. Um, like an overhand over a lead uppercut is how he knocked out Matt Schnell after they both wobble each other multiple times in a really exciting first round. So Pantoja is a violent man, just not as violent as Roy Val necessarily. Pantoja also had issues with the high pace Askar Askarov set in their fight. Although we don't usually think of gas tanks as being a factor at flyweight, it definitely was in that third round versus Askarov. And if this goes that long, we might see the similarly high pace of Roy Val wear on Pantoja. Yeah, well, worth noting, um, three out of uh, Pantoja's last four fights uh, went the distance to decision, and he lost two of them. You know what I mean? So that that's kind yeah. of a uh, a bellwether or a harbinger of what happens to him in the third round. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Although the Figgy fight, you know, was Figgy fights at a slower pace because he doesn't have great cardio himself, and he just likes to punch people as hard as he can and knock them out. But it was impressive to weather the storm there. I mean, he actually performed more impressively versus Figgy than Askarov, all things considered. Anyway, Patoja is a high-level grappler, black belt, of course, great on top and off his back. He's not a prolific takedown artist, despite the fact that he has great setups for his takedowns when he uses them. He lands less than one takedown per 15 minutes in the octagon. And actually, he gets taken down 2.68 times per 15 minutes on average. But like I said, that happens a lot with BJJ guys. Um, And the numbers are a bit inflated. As 11 of the 20 times he was taken down came in two of his first three UFC fights. uh, Which was against... uh, Eric Shelton and Dustin Ortiz. He won one by he won against Shelton by split decision, and he lost to Ortiz. Um, but since then, he's only been taken down once or twice in each fight, or, or no times. All of his subs in the UFC are by rear naked choke, as are most of them in his in his whole career. But he definitely has other submissions in his arsenal. We see him work for triangles and arm bars off of his back uh, in his offensive guard, although. Uh, I don't think he's as good off his back as um, Roy Val, but he's. I think he's better. He has a better top game than Roy Val, I'll say. But so this is this is an even one. They both like to brawl. They both have great jujitsu. Neither man has been finished, other than when um, Roy Val, uh, you know, uh, tore, tore his shoulder out of his socket by, I mean, an accident mostly. I mean, it is a legitimate win for Moreno. But it's hard to say it's a legitimate, like, it's hard to blame Morival for getting finished by shoulder dislocation. Yeah. So, both guys, prolific finishers, especially Morival, but not been finished in their careers, really. Uh, It'll just be interesting to see if one of them can choke the other out or knock the other out. It'll be really impressive. Like, part of me wants to say, no way, this goes the distance, they're too violent. But another part of me wants to say... Well, they don't get finished, so it kind of has to go the distance in a war. So, I mean, I don't see how this fight doesn't have a performance of the night or a fight of the uh, night. These guys are just too exciting. 
But also, as far as the betting lines, I think this is an even fight. You know, almost 50-50 down the middle. And because um, Royval is the underdog, I, I think the value is all on Yeah, him. this was going to be um, my pick for our later segment here, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, the best line you can get for Brandon Royval is plus 157 on five dimes. Um, so, that's our play for one unit. Brandon yeah, Royval. And- one fifty seven five for dimes. people that have other places, one fifty seven five dimes. Uh let me see, I got him at uh one fifty one fifty three bet one fifty five at DraftKings. Um one fifty at bet three sixty, but look out there. This is yeah, that's the value bet for sure. I'm looking forward to this fight. Yeah. Um I think uh Roy Val like you said, uh he he moves forward, but he, not like a pressure fighter. Just he's always he's always engaging, and yeah. uh, that's also what you mentioned. His problem when he's on the ground is uh, he looks for submission over position because he's always you know what I mean. He's just always going for it. He's very fucking exciting. Yeah, very exciting. He never stop. He never stops moving. He right. never takes a breath and. And he's able to go three full rounds, although we rarely see it. This might be a bet. I don't know what the prop numbers are on it, but this, I think there's going to be a knockout or a stoppage here. This might be one to get under 3.0 or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just it's tough because they've not been finished, like I said. But I, I kind of lean that way as well. All right, yeah. Gaslam versus Cannoneer. Our main event, though not the people's main event, it's still a great fight. I think the second best fight on this card. Um, you know, you got Kelvin who came up from welterweight and Jared Cannonier who's come down from heavyweight, heavyweight to late heavyweight to, to where he is now at, at middleweight. I think middleweight's the right division for him, but he's still really big in it. Um, I mean, he's he is so, so big as far as thickness. He's 5'11", but with a 77-inch reach, which is insane. And Kelvin Gastelum, he's come up from welterweight. I already said that, didn't I? Anyway, he's come up, but he's it's not the division for him. I mean, he just has too much chub on him. He needs to go back to welterweight to be really effective, wasn't that, I think. And he's 5'9", yeah. with a 71-inch reach. Wasn't that, reach. before you get into your analysis, um, he was... Um, he was always a chubby fighter, and then they, they were like... Look, you got to move up a division where actually what should have happened is he should have just cut some weight and stayed where he was. Yeah, he was. He just kept missing weight, though. Right, and, right. Uh, so that that so, seems that that's on him. Yeah, he that loves, seems like he loves his mama's Mexican right, cooking. That too seems much. like a a personal issue. It hundred percent is. I mean, we've, we've we've seen it a lot with him. Um, and he's and he's and he's fallen off a bit lately. I mean, he's on a one in four streak, losing to Adesanya, and I mean, you can't hold that against him as it was an amazing fight. And losing to Darren Till, split decision, still a loss. Then heel hooked inside a minute and a half by Jack Hermanson, beats Ian Heinish, who is no longer ranked, um, and then gets dominated by five rounds for Rob Whitaker. So he's in a tough position here. Uh, where he's lost to all the top uh, the middleweights almost, except for Paulo Costa, Jared Cannonier, and Derek Brunson, really. Um, so he has to win this. I mean, right now he's still ranked lower. He's ranked like ninth or eighth in the middleweight division, whereas Cannonier is ranked third right after Costa. 
But if Gaslam wants to get back into this title picture, he has to win this. Yeah. He really does. Like, he's had a lot of chances. Yeah, I think... He had the Till chance, the Hermanson chance, and the Whitaker chance, and he couldn't pull off any of them to get yeah, back in the title I, picture. I was going to say, before you said he's had a lot of chances, I was going to say that uh, I think the UFC has gave this guy every fucking opportunity. Yeah, I mean, he <clears throat> he knocked out or beat a lot of people. He beat Hendricks, Tim Kennedy, Vitor Belfort, then lost to Weidman, then beat Bisping and Jacare to earn his title shot. So it was kind of a question because he was on a two-fight win streak when he got his title shot, and um, a lot of the fights that earned him his title shot were actually welterweight fights, like the you know the old fights over Ellenberg or Mark Hart and Hendricks. Yeah, I'll- <clears throat> and then a split decision over Jacare. All those, but, all those fights now, I, though, in hindsight, uh, we've seen how those guys' have career, careers have went since then. Those were all guys yeah. on the outs of their career. You know, and I love Jacare. Yeah. And uh, Big Rig was great during his time, but he beat all those guys on the downside of their career. For sure. I mean, and Vitor. Vitor right. was way done when he knocked out Vitor. And Bisping, I mean, Bisping, that was right before he retired his last fight. right? At, and it was two weeks after he got choked out by GSP, so he really should not have been fighting. That was fucked up. Um, but it, it helped Kevin Gastelum get to the title shot. Anyway, um, Jared Cannonier, he's he has fought some of the best, honestly, at, 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 uh, at light heavyweight. He fought Glover, and he was beating Glover on the feet. But his weakness has been, or was, definitely... Uh, wrestling. He got re- once Glover, you know, grabbed his leg. He went straight down. Um, he only had, I think, two wins. Yeah, two wins. He beat Kutalaba. Just two, and Kutalaba was able to take him down, but he out cardioed Kutalaba, who gasses easily, and he beat Nick Rorick. Um, and then lost to the champ Jan Blachowicz and what should have been the champ Dominic Reyes. And then he moved down again. Uh, I think his wife is a nutritionist, and and. She's the one who wanted him to move down because she's like, I can, I can get this you better with nutrition and stuff. And yeah, so he went down, fought David Branch, got a win, staved off his wrestling um, by knockout. Then he fought Anderson Silva at UFC 237 um, and, and injured Anderson Silva's leg, but with some brutal leg kicks. I mean, it, it was rough to see as a as a massive Silva fan just see him falling down with his leg. It wasn't, like, broken or anything, but it was damaged yeah. badly, and he couldn't stand on it. Um, and then he beat Jack Hermanson, and that was that's his most impressive win uh, to date because Hermanson's a good wrestler and an even better grappler. He staved him off. Oh, and Hermanson has a great chin, and he staved him off and knocked him out, like, bam. I mean, this guy, he has the speed of a middleweight, but the power of a heavyweight, which... I mean, you can't say that about really anybody else. His problem, though, has always been defensive wrestling. But, like I said, it's been improved in his ability to stave off Hermanson and David Branch in these last two fights, or two of his last four fights. His last fight, he lost to Rob Whitaker in the co-main of UFC 254. Um, And it was, I mean, he lost clearly. I I had it 30-27. Judges, some judges had it 29-28. But Whitaker beat him, but it was still a close fight, and that was with a broken uh, right hand. Kennedy's right hand was broken. And uh, yeah, so, and, 
makes it for yeah, a tough fight. Yeah, and just to say, um, I think Whitaker is really underrated by a lot of people. That guy has got mad stand-up yeah. skills, man. His box, his Rob boxing is, is on point. Rob is top ten pound for pound easily for me, if not higher. I mean, uh, but yeah, a lot of. I hate to use the word casual, but sometimes it just has to be used. A lot of more casual fans think he sucks because because he got knocked out by Izzy, it, and that's just the way it is, and it's, that's just how it is for now. But he's clearly him and Izzy are in a tier of their own above everybody else. The next tier is Paulo Costa, Darren Till, and Jared Cannonier. Right after yeah. that, you know. Yep. Um. But yeah, Jared Kinnanier, he switches stances, he's massive, he switch hits really well, he can kick better than Gastelum, who Gastelum's all about the boxing, but kicking could get him taken down in this fight, which is the thing he doesn't want. He's always been able to explode upwards, especially as he's moved down weight classes, because he, I mean, he's so explosive, and now fighting smaller fighters, he's able to get out of underneath their wrestling better. But Yaslam has been going to his wrestling more, and I, I, I really think that's the path for Kelvin to win. I mean, Kelvin has to, A, get into the pocket, and B, either hit him, box him up like he did to Izzy, and, or, C, or B, take him down. Those, the, those are the things that are key for Kelvin Gastelum. Um, especially Kelvin's left hand. He's going to need to set up his takedowns with his left hand, but... He needs to, needs to find a way into the pocket past the kicks and, and uh, long reach of Jared Kennear, and it's going to be very, very tough. And um, what will be a problem as well is because uh, Gastelum should be fighting a weight class lower, and Kennear could be fighting one higher easily. I mean, he's an incredible physical specimen. You know what I mean? He has, he has a heavyweight chin, you know, so... Yeah. <laughs> Gastelum has a a good left hand for his size, but I don't know if it's going to be that devastating against Cannoneer. Yeah, exactly. And I, and Cannoneer has devastating yeah. power, but Gastelum has w- one of the best chins yeah, he in the does. game. He so does. I think this one goes the distance. Um, and I've really gone back and forth about playing that. And as of now, I'm not playing if it goes the distance or over 4.5 or round 5 to start. But I, I be on the lookout because I may tweet that out. Uh, I need, I'm deliberating with myself a lot. I mean, Kinnanier's only been finished by Dominic Reyes and by a heavyweight, which uh, that's pretty good. I mean, Reyes finished everyone on the way to his yeah, title dude, shot. Dude, he's an incredible physical specimen, dude. He's just, you know, he's yeah. like a snake. And what I mean by that is just like every fucking thing on him is muscle, dude. You know what I mean? He's incredible. Yeah. Um, one last thing is, uh, the cardio. We don't know what Cannoneer's five-round cardio looks like because he hasn't been five rounds. Gaslam has been five rounds. He's main evented against Whitaker, um, and Adesanya and the like. Uh, so we, he, and he's not cutting weight really for this, not much at least. So he should be good. Cannoneer cuts a bunch of weight. He has good cardio over three rounds. He doesn't seem particularly gassed at the end of a hard three-round fight, but you don't know over five rounds. I think Kenanier should try to level the playing field by clinching with Gastelum, you know, and just wearing on him, using his much bigger size to tire Gastelum out and just dirty box in the clinch. That could work against him as it'll let Gastelum close to him and Gastelum could take him down or 
escape and box him up from Yeah, but the I agree with you on that because I think Cannoneer's uh, strength and power, he'll be okay in the clinch. You know what I mean? I think he'll be able to yeah. control those kind of matchups. Yeah, and, and uh, Gastelum has been controlled by Darren Till in the clinch in the past. So, like, it, it, there's a blueprint there for doing that. But uh, that's all for now on, on, on that. All right, yeah. Um, I'm excited to see that fight, but um, I absolutely agree with you that uh, the people's main event or co-main event, we'll, we'll figure out what we're going to call it, is a pantosha Royval fight. I'm very excited about that. Now we got to get into the Don't Be a Pussy Parlay. You got five for me? All righty. Yeah, I, 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 boy, do I ever! I could have eight for you, but yeah. So, Marco Madsen, Chase Sherman, um, Brandon Royval, Luis Saldana, and William Knight. All right, all right. You took uh... a, <laughs> yeah. Years, you took yeah. most of mine. So let me see. But I, I had to go with the one dog because that's what you usually do. Yeah, I, I, that was the dog I was going to go with, too. So I'm going to see if there's another dog I'll take here. You know, um, my parlay is going to be exactly what yours is. Same parlay, but um, for my walk on the dog, I'll take someone else. So my parlay okay. is the same as yours. I'll go with my walking the dog parlay. I'm going to take Nunez. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty good. Who's your dog? You're going to go? Um, my dog, yeah, my dog of the week is Brandon Royval. I mean, my backup would be Ignacio Bahamundes. All right. Both of those are 50-50 fights, but there's more value on yeah. the Royval line because he's a bigger underdog. We we try and mix it up, but I think this this week is hard because we both agree that uh, Royval is way undervalued here, and that's the pick. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, that, that, that's that. I mean, uh, check out – we're on a network. We've, I think we've been forgetting to mention it. We need to go check out the SpoFi network at SpoFi HQ. Though they, we do a lot of – our, our network does a lot of great stuff with all kinds of sports, football, golf, yeah. you name it. I always um, I always put it in, in our show notes. I always make sure to mention Spofi yeah, and stuff. Yeah, we don't mention them enough on the I just, show. I just feel bad. I want to yeah. mention it. Now. I want to mention it at the end or beginning of every show. Just say. Yeah, we don't mention anyway. them enough. Um, MMA is our little corner, but these guys know hockey, golf, basketball, football. Val and I may be talking with them about football some, but these guys know their shit. Spofi HQ, everyone should check it out, man. We're just a little startup trying to do good. Yeah, and um, special shout out to, as always, to at, at and Numbers MMA and to Uncle Weezy. Uh, they, they give me the stats that, that help me out a lot. 